0: And welcome to Writing the Coast. I'm your host, Megan Cole, and Writing the Coast is the official podcast of the BC and Yukon Book Prizes. This is your destination for conversations with the winners and finalists of our annual prizes, as well as discussions with book lovers from across the country. In the early 2000s, a documentary and a book called The Corporation was released. I remember watching the documentary and reading the book as a young political science student.
1: What is a corporation? It is under the law a legal person. These are a special kind of person who have no moral conscience, designed by law to be concerned only for their stockholders. I just can't be personally responsible. Maybe you better incorporate. There are
0: companies that make our lives better, and that's a good thing. The problem comes in the profit motivation. When I rewatched the trailer for The Corporation, which was released in 2003, I couldn't help but think that everything was the same. Nothing had changed. The Corporation was written by Joel Bakken, and he's my guest for today's episode.
1: Yes, I'm Joel Bakken, and uh, I'm really... Delighted to be here, and I'm here because uh, I wrote a book called The New Corporation, How Good Corporations Are Bad for Democracy, uh, which is a sequel to an earlier book uh, in the early 2000s called The Corporation, um, The Pathological Pursuit of Profit and Power. And in both cases, for both books, I made documentary films um, that were based upon them.
0: One thing I noticed when I interviewed Joel was that despite everything, he's hopeful. And this hope was reflected in his answer to my question about what character from a book he'd like to be.
1: So there's a famous book called Resurrection, uh, which is one of my favorite all-time books. Uh, And it's written by, by Leo Tolstoy. And I'm gonna take your question a little bit sideways. Um, because rather than being any of the characters in that book, I'd like to be Leo Tolstoy. Um, And I'd like to be Leo Tolstoy because he's every character in that book. He was an activist. um, He was a defender of human rights. He gave up his worldly possessions in order to help others. He was also, maybe I wouldn't want to be him. He was also a very sort of tortured um, individual um, psychologically and, and in other ways, but, he found himself through religion in his case. And, you know, that's uh, that's his way of having found himself. But he really contributed a lot to the world and and not just by way of literature. And Resurrection in particular was a prophetic book. I mean, I, I quoted in The New Corporation, actually, uh, because he's writing in 1899 and he's talking about uh, he opens by talking about how the world is being destroyed by industrial capitalism, by pollution, how uh, everywhere you look, you know, there's death. But, but then he says, but spring will always be spring. I mean, and, and so in, in the opening page of this book, he kind of talks about our destroying the world, but also this incredible note of hope. And uh, from there, the, the story unfolds in a really beautiful way.
0: Joel's book, The New Corporation, won the 2021 Jim Diva Prize for Writing That Provokes. And as you'll hear, my reaction to rewatching the trailer was kind of the same reason he decided it was time for a sequel. Joel starts this episode with a reading from the book.
1: On May 25th, 2020, George Floyd was killed at the hands of four police officers in Minneapolis, murdered. This book was on its way to the printer, but I was able to add these final thoughts. The fight to create a different and better world gains new urgency as citizens across the globe pour into the streets to protest racial injustice. Though ignited by the brutal police killing of George Floyd, these protests are about much more. Modern corporate capitalism is rooted in racist oppression and colonialism. Its rise reflected the prevailing idea at the time that non-whites are less than fully human. The same twisted logic advanced to justify slavery, genocidal policies, and land grabs from indigenous peoples and slave-like conditions for workers in colonial territories. The great corporate fortunes of early capitalism, Imperial companies like the Dutch East India Company and the Hudson's Bay Company, as well as slave traders, banks, and industrial empires, were thus forged from white supremacist beliefs and practices. The fact is, modern corporate capitalism was built on foundations of dehumanizingly racist doctrines and practices. In the United States and other places, for example, quote, the original capital was provided by the labor of slaves, as Angela Davis notes. She continues, the Industrial Revolution, which pivoted around the production of capital, was enabled by slave labor. And the echoes of that past, and colonialism more generally, reverberate ever louder today. The ongoing worldwide protests sparked by George Floyd's unjust death are helping lay bare the systemic roots of racism as outrage spreads. Movements like Black Lives Matter build upon past movements and are in turn built upon by new movements across the globe. Racist horrors and injustices, lived and suffered by racialized peoples for centuries, are thrust powerfully into the light of public scrutiny. Most new corporations, have joined in, proclaiming solidarity with protesters and social movements. And while their leaders' avowals and promises to help are possibly sincere, the fact remains, as I've argued throughout, that corporations can only do such good as will help them do well, a profound limit on how and how much good they do. And even worse, an obfuscation of their predilection to do bad, to in this case promote racial injustice. Just look at what corporations do. They campaign for cuts to taxes, regulation and spending, and thus undermine policies designed to foster racial equality, human rights protections, anti-poverty programs, workers' rights, job and income security, social services, public schools, health care and housing, pay equity, anti-discrimination measures. They lobby for laws that facilitate exploitation of migrant workers. They push for mega-projects, mines, pipelines, oil fields, and industrial farms that dispossess indigenous peoples and destroy their lands and ways of life. They campaign for trade deals that facilitate harsh exploitation of workers in the global south and the abandonment of those in the global north. They lobby to ensure pollution and climate-altering emissions, both of which inordinately impact the racialized poor, are weakly regulated, if at all. Through such actions, these new supposedly woke corporations foster new forms of colonialism, ones that converge synergistically with old forms of racism. Today's protesters are challenging that, and the broader dynamics of injustice informing it. They're puncturing myths and seeking change. Quote, this is America's moment of reckoning, as the Harvard University professor and commentator, Dr. Cornell West, describes it. He continues, the catalyst was certainly Brother George Floyd's public lynching. But the broader context is the failure of the predatory capitalist economy to provide the satisfaction of the basic needs of food and healthcare and quality education, jobs with a decent wage. It's a system obsessed with money, 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 domination of workers, marginalization of those who don't fit. What we need, Dr. West continues, is a nonviolent revolutionary project of full-scale democratic sharing, power, wealth, resources, respect, organizing, and fundamental transformation. Close quote. Amen to that.
0: Well, let's dig into uh, to the new corporation a little bit. As I was saying um, before we started the podcast, I remember reading the corporation when I was at UVic, doing my undergrad in political science, and and it comes up in the book and in the documentary, of course, that you know you calling these corporations psychopaths. It, they claim it changed how they did things, and I'm curious at what point you thought oh god I might have to write a sequel like when did that start to become something you were considering
1: you know it's one of those things and and this doesn't happen too often in life where there was actually a seminal moment there was a sort of eureka kind of moment and feared in my brain and it was we were celebrating the 10th anniversary of the corporation film in 2014 or 2013 uh, and we'd rented a big theater downtown and we had a big screening and we were having a party and, you know, there was lots of nice food and champagne and, you know, we were really patting ourselves on the back for having made this film uh, 10 years earlier. And it's still sort of being a film that people watched and were moved by and influenced by, but it was about the halfway point in the film when it just hit me like a ton of bricks that there was really nothing to celebrate, that everything we had talked about in that film, climate change, racial and economic injustice, exploitation of workers, toxic chemicals in the environment, all of it had gotten significantly worse and corporations had gotten significantly bigger and more powerful And we're controlling more of our lives and societies, uh, especially with the rise of big tech. And at the same time that sort of everything was getting worse and we were going off this sort of cliff of existential crisis on so many fronts, corporations were saying, hey, we're better now. You know, we're no longer psychopathic. We're, We're the good guys. We're the solution. We're not the problem anymore and um you know we're sustainable we're woke we're socially responsible uh whatever you know is the latest flavor esg is how it's described today environment social and governance but but we're good and not only are we not going to do harm anymore but you should look to us to lead the way to a clean environment to eradicating climate change, to dealing with inequality. We are going to become the social and environmental leaders. And I thought, wow, this is a problem. Uh, clearly, we hadn't done our job in the first film because they're they're running this line and people are believing it and governments are believing it. Um, and so it was that moment that I thought, okay, we need to take another kick at this can because obviously the first project didn't solve the problem. And so it's why the new project was called the new corporation, because I really wanted to address frontally and centrally the idea that corporations had said that they were renewed—that that this was now the kind of um, Kool-Aid that everybody was drinking—it was no longer, oh, we'll do a bit of you know philanthropy here or a bit of social responsibility there, but it was that we are here on Earth. Corporations were saying to do good—that is our mission—and you know, starting around that time, if you went to the website of any major corporation, you would think you'd accidentally landed on the website of some activist NGO. You know, their opening page would be all about how they're saving the world. And you'd really have to dig deeper to find out, oh, gee, you know, they're making a lot of money. And that's what they're telling their shareholders. But what they're telling all of us is they're they're making our lives better. They're saving the world. They're solving environmental problems and so on. So, yeah, it was really I, I felt that needed to be addressed.
0: Yeah. It, it's interesting in reading it because I, I couldn't help but think of like where I was when I read the corporation. And it was, you know, as a, a young political science student, and I was volunteering for the Sierra Club, we were having lots of conversations about how, you know, we need people were talking about like voting with their dollar and being, you know, that if we put our money in the right places, then we could, we could make change. And we really see in this book that maybe we were we kind of created a monster a little bit. And I'm wondering what you think about that idea. Like, did that hurt us or help us or somewhere in between?
1: Yeah, it's somewhere in between. I mean, as, as I argue in, in the book, what, what makes me hopeful is that, that people really want change. They really want to deal with the problems in the environment of inequality, of racism, colonialism, There's a really broad movement, but we're following the wrong star, you know, and that's how I describe it in the book. We've been misled to believe and very much, you know, a a crafted kind of propaganda campaign by the corporate world um, to believe that the star to follow is. Markets and corporations and not government. The thing that scares corporations the most is not consumers, you know, buying organic or buying electric cars because they can make those things and make money from them. The thing that scares corporations the most uh, is democratic governance is actually being required by law and by democratic governments to uh, not pollute the environment, to pay workers a decent wage. That's what scares them. So to the extent they can sort of push us towards the direction of voting with our dollars rather than actually voting, and of seeing that as the place where we're going to have an impact, that is a victory for them. Um, And and I go into that in a lot of detail in the book, basically showing how consumer power is actually not power at all. I mean, there's very little power in consumer power. Um, And there are all kinds of reasons for that. And and I discuss them in the book. But um, the bottom line, if I can borrow that term from those I criticize, um, the bottom line is that consumption buying your way to a better world doesn't really work and what it does do is it legitimates the corporate sector's push to diminish government's regulation of them uh and and their push to become more involved in things that traditionally have been in the public sector like running schools or water systems or whatever so so It's part of this whole ideological package that, oh, we as consumers just have to make choices individually to buy this product rather than that product. And that will take us to a better world. We don't need uh, government. We don't need law. We don't need regulation. We just need the dollars that we have uh, and to use them in the right way. So uh, I think that's part of this very dangerous movement uh, that I track in the book um, towards effectively privatizing governance uh, in society and uh, diluting, if not destroying, democracy.
0: It's interesting because I couldn't help but think as I was reading, like, why Why do we trust corporations? Like, where has this trust and this this belief come from? And it, and the flip side of it, of course, is how have we come to this place where we trust corporations but don't trust government? And we see that—I mean, I—I I had conversations with my friends during the recent election where people were just like not voting, and it happens. I think it's happening more and more, and people don't trust government for for good reasons. But at the same time, why have we now put our trust in corporations as the flip side of that?
1: Yeah, and and I think it's it's because corporations are very good at portraying themselves as having the means and now the motivation uh, to do the things that need to be done. I mean, you know, there are two sort of in our democratic uh, market-based societies, there are really two major concentrations of power that can get big things done. Uh, One is the big corporations and the other is government. So um, it's kind of like once you lose your faith in government then you have to place it somewhere and that's the where you place it but you know even more than that it's also been a constant sort of ideological barrage from corporations you know they have a lot of firepower in uh in culture uh they you know they're all over the place they're buying ads they're sponsoring tv shows and movies and you know they've they've got more firepower than anybody but government and they use it much more than government and they use it in very effective ways. Uh, They hire very smart public relations people and marketing people um, and they know what they're doing. And so part of the reason we believe what we believe is because, you know, we're human, like we can only deal with the information that we're given. And if they flood the airways with with these messages, they're eventually going to affect us. But I think there's another piece to the story, which I work out in the book as well. And that is that what the corporate world, what big business, has tried to do, and this isn't, a, I don't believe in conspiracy theories. I believe in theories that you can track factually. And I track this one factually. And I think any business person you ask, if they're being honest, will tell you this is the case, that for the last 40 years, Big business has lobbied to diminish government, to reduce taxes, to reduce regulation, and to reduce public uh, services and public provision of services. So they have whittled away, actually whittled is probably too light a term, they have uh, bludgeoned government over the last 40 years. Uh, academics call the trend neoliberalism, um, but they basically push the idea that markets and corporations should have more power and governments should have less uh, to regulate them and, and to provide services and all that. Having diminished government to that point, they then say, look, government doesn't work. So, you know, and and I go through this dynamic in the book, um, this kind of two-step play that, you know, first you destroy uh, government or you destroy schools or you destroy utility service or whatever by promoting fewer taxes, fewer resources in government. Starving the beast is how it's often described. And then you swoop in and say, look, we're going to save the day. You know, government's ineffective. It doesn't work. So we're going to save the day. So there's that piece. And the other piece that I look at in the book, because I was writing, of course, when Trump was in power, and when Trump was campaigning for another term, uh, during all of that, and the question was, how does everything I'm talking about relate to the fact that 50% of Americans are supporting Donald Trump, uh, and that in other countries, these kinds of right wing populists are supported by lots of people, uh, often majorities. So how does that relate? And the basic argument I make is that if government has been diminished to the point where it's no longer relevant in a positive way in people's lives, where schools are failing, uh, water systems are failing, uh, wealth isn't being distributed, uh, the rich are getting richer, the poor are getting poorer, working conditions are awful, job security is awful. If that is what your democratic governments are giving you, then democracy doesn't look very attractive. Uh, It's just this ideal that everybody says is a good thing, but on the ground, your lives are not getting better. It's not giving you, it's not serving you in any way. So when you're told, you know, oh, you should defend democracy and all this, it's like, why? Um, And so I think that's part of what's happening in this sort of base that's developed supporting Sort of anti-government governments, governments that want to just strip away all social services, deregulate all of that, and add to that a sort of authoritarian impulse, like Trump and like others. I, I think it's that big business has so succeeded in destroying government that they've destroyed anything attractive about it, and and so that's um, that that leads to to what we're seeing. And so you know the the solution to that which both the book and film investigate, is we kind of have to re-democratize democracy. And that means more than just sort of getting out the vote. That means making government truly relevant in a positive way in challenging and confronting and solving the massive problems that we're dealing in terms of inequality, climate change, everything else. That the only way democracy is going to survive is if we have socially and environmentally proactive government. If we don't have that, then of course people are going to distrust government, because every election cycle we hear all these promises and nothing happens. And nothing happens in part because government has been so thoroughly eviscerated through corporate pressure over the last 40 years so that's uh that's my that's my long um short answer to a really important question
0: you were you mentioned that you were writing kind of as trump was going in for re-election and you in your reading mentioned the murder of george floyd and it seemed with this book you were likely having to react to a lot (laughs) and one of those things is obviously the pandemic and i'm curious how how far along were you in the writing process when that happened like where was davos happening like that january as the pandemic no okay
1: no i had i i mean the, the really sad story is is i had written the book and we'd locked the film when the pandemic hit um and because of the pandemic the whole publishing industry slowed down and so what was going to be a spring 2020 release turned out to be a fall 2020 release and that worked out I guess, well, because it meant that I could go back into the book and incorporate the pandemic. When George Floyd was murdered, it wasn't quite as simple because the book was basically at the printer. Um, So I managed to convince uh, the publisher, and it was sort of the American branch of Penguin Random House was, was kind of driving the bus on this. And I managed to convince them to allow me to add uh and afterward, but I couldn't go back into the manuscript that had been locked. And we basically had to do the same thing with the film, almost exactly parallel. We were able to kind of because of the timing and and you know it came out in September as well, it came out same time. So we were able to unlock the film, which is a really big deal, um, because once you've lock to film that's when you add all the sound and music and and it's a really big deal to unlock it it unravels a lot of things and it costs a lot of money uh, so we had to raise some more money so we unlocked it to deal with covid we then locked it again and then george floyd happened and again the film was kind of you know sitting at the broadcaster um at crave and you know ready to to be premiered at the toronto film festival but we managed to to put together a, um, a kind of epilogue uh, that, that, like with the book, sort of took the themes uh, that we had looked at and, and brought it into that moment.
0: And I mean, the pandemic comes up a lot in the book, so I can yeah. imagine there was a lot of work for you to do in it that. But, but one of the things that, that I think we all were kind of talking about as it was happening was, how does this change how we go forward. And in the book, you address that, like that we can't really go back to quote unquote normal. I'm curious how you feel about that now, that given that it's been, you know, a a year since the book came out and the pandemic is still happening, do you think there's still that possibility for change or are we slipping closer back to normal?
1: I think we are slipping closer back to normal, but I don't think that we should be. So I stand by the prescriptive part of the statement um, that we really can't go back to normal. And, and, you know, the reason we can't go back to normal is because what the pandemic um, taught us was not just a story about pandemics. It was a story about climate change. It was a story about racial injustice. It was a story about inequality. It was a story about a system that's broken Um, because when the pandemic hit uh, the impact of it, was clearly filtered through existing injustices and inequalities, just like the impact of climate change is, just like the impact of environmental degradation is. All of these things uh, hit racialized people, poor people, working people harder than others. And, you know, you don't have to be a rocket scientist to figure out that. If you have more money, you have more means to protect yourself from, uh, from these sorts of things and more means to sort of immunize yourself, literally and figuratively. So I, I think what the pandemic revealed in a very sharp and a very clear way uh, were the fault lines in the system. I don't think that has changed. What has happened is there's been a kind of papering over of those fault lines and you know i don't know what it will take to to really change things maybe another i i I just i don't know i'm sort of shaking my head a bit i there was some there was some i think there and there remain some um hopeful notes i mean there is a sense now that government has to be proactive more on social and environmental issues. I think the pandemic brought, uh, it, it put a lie in a sense to the neoliberal idea that corporations and markets can take care of everything. It showed that we really do need sort of democratic public infrastructure to help solve major problems that we confront, healthcare and, and so on. But you know, I'm I'm an ever uh, I'm ever hopeful. Um, and history has never gone in a straight line. And I think we did learn some things from the pandemic. We see some real movement uh, in terms of of social movement action. Uh, Black Lives Matter on um, the uh, in terms of indigenous resistance, climate action, school children going on strike. You know, we, like we see a lot that is is cause for a lot of hope and and we even see in the united states i mean though we saw it more i would say six months ago than we're seeing it now but you know the biden administration did seem to be moving in uh in some progressive directions um that i think wouldn't have happened were it not for the pandemic elements of the green new deal for example coming coming into play so Yeah. I, you know, history unfolds in very strange and never very straight ways. And I remain, I remain hopeful. There are all these, these little uh, sort of um, spotlights of, of, of hope that, that hopefully will broaden and start to come together.
0: I was going to ask, are you, do you worry that you'll have to write another book?
1: (laughs) I, um, yeah, I, I, I do. I mean, I, I have to give it another, I think, substantial period of time to sort of see how things go. And I, I yeah, I'm not. I, it 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 raises a larger question um, for me as to as to kind of what's next. I mean, I I kind of I think this is a really important theme, but I think I've kind of had my word on it um, at least for the next few years. So I'm kind of thinking. Um, about you know some some other other directions um but not enough to talk about them yet
0: thanks to joel for being on the podcast and thanks as always to you for listening and subscribing to writing the coast if you want to find out more about the bc and yukon book prizes visit our website bc dot You can also find us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook, where we share news about the winners and finalists, as well as information about upcoming events. Next time on Writing the Coast, you'll hear my conversation with Jordan Scott. Jordan's book, I Talk Like a River, illustrated by Sydney Smith, was a finalist for the 2021 Christy Harris Illustrated Children's Literature Prize. Thanks for listening to Writing the Coast.